Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you're joining me on this Friday broadcast. And I can't believe we got the Friday so quick this week, uh, but we're excited about the study that we are doing. And uh, we're looking at what happens to us when we drift in our faith. Uh, there's five indicators that you are drifting from your faith. And we're going to go through and finish up this series today. But I want to encourage you that you don't have to be living in a state of drifting. You can be walking in sync with the will of God for your life. Uh, you don't have to wander around lost like you don't know where you're going. Listen, when God saved us, He saved us with a purpose and a direction because you never drift into nothingness. You always go somewhere when you're drifting. Uh, so we should be walking with precision, realizing that God has a big plan for us. And part of that is trusting God's promises, right? You know, in a moving tribute for the 400th anniversary of the King James Bible, a local newspaper in Nebraska referred to an incident from World War II. It was the spring of 1940. The German army was plowing through France, desperate to try to take over and to defeat not only France, but the whole European empire. 300 British troops were standing up against them, and uh, we as a nation, United States, hadn't gotten involved in the war uh, at that point. Uh, but finally, the Germans are surrounded, and they're trapped by the Allied forces at Dunkirk, that town in northern France. It appeared that the Allied army would face annihilation or surrender. Well, eventually, through a miraculous outpouring of courage, the British managed to organize an amazing flotilla of hundreds of little ships that evacuate most of the Allied forces. But before the evacuation, at one point, it wasn't looking good. At one point, everything looked utterly hopeless. Allegedly, our British officer sent the following message, condensed into three powerful words. But if not. Now, at that time, it was a strong message of courage, the ultimate hope in the midst of trouble. The message conveyed that the British would stand defiantly against the Nazis and that God would provide a way through the dark night. The Nebraska newspaper article went on to explain the background to those three little words, but if not. It came straight from the King James Bible. As the prophet Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, faced a fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3, they refused to go down in defeat. Instead, they declared their trust in God, even if their mission failed. According to Daniel chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, they said, If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, king, that we will not serve your gods, nor worship that golden image which you have set up. But if not, words from God that still speak to our hearts today. But if not, words of hope, words of encouragement, when life seems dark and hopeless, but if not, words to live by, and for some, words to die by. 
as we look at the subject of drifting from our faith. We learned yesterday that we drift when we stop resolving conflicts. We drift, secondly, when we stop removing selfishness from our lives. We move from solid direction to drifting when we stop relying on God's promises. And then number four, we stop rescuing others. We give up on the rescue of others. You know, there's a fascinating story about Abraham Lincoln. And Abraham Lincoln, near the end of the Civil War, it's actually recorded that he cared for three little kittens at the battlefront. It's a touching scene that showed the gentleness and the tenderness of President Abraham Lincoln. While he was visiting uh, near the battle lines, Lincoln noticed that there were three little kittens who had lost their mother. Well, moved by their meowing, he picked them up and he began to comfort them. Lincoln said, poor little creatures, don't cry. You'll be taken care of. And he said to an officer, now, Colonel, come over here, and, and I hope that you will see that these poor little motherless kittens are given plenty of milk and treated kindly. Well, the colonel replied, I will see to it, Mr. President, that they are taken care of and that our cook will care for them. What an amazing story of kindness. One of the officers on the scene said, it was a curious sight at an army headquarters upon the eve of a great military crisis in our nation's history to see the hand which had affixed a signature to the Emancipation Proclamation and who had signed the commissions of all the army men who served in the cause of the Union, tenderly caring for three stray kittens. There was a biographer of Lincoln, John Meckham, says it was not only curious, it was revealing. In the midst of carnage, fresh from a battle strewn with the corpse of those that, that he had ordered into battle, Lincoln was sinking some kind of affirmation of life, some evidence of innocence, some sense of kindliness amidst cruelty. The orphan kittens were a small thing, but they were there. And his focus on their welfare was a passing human moment of vast drama. When we look at the story of Abraham and Lot, Abraham rescues Lot. Yesterday we learned that a decision was made. They went separate ways because their herdsmen from Lot were battling with the herdsmen of Abraham. And, and Abraham says, you go one way, I'll go the other. And, and Lot chose the, the well-watered plains right up against Sodom. Abraham went the opposite direction. Abraham creates a place of worship in Hebron. And, and now he's learning that his nephew is in trouble. And we pick up the story in, in Genesis chapter 14. It says that four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew, Lot, in all of his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. You see, first he pitched his tents on the outskirts of Sodom, and, and we're not too deep into the story. We discover that Lot is now living in Sodom. And Sodom and Gomorrah is seized by four kings, and they carry off Lot's nephew and all of his possessions. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out 318 trained men who were born in his household, 
and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abraham divided up his men to attack them, and, and he rooted them and pursuing them as far as, as Hobar and as far north as Damascus. He recovered all the goods. He brought back his relative lot and all of his possessions, together with the women and all the other people. Mission successful. We discover Abraham rescuing Lot. What a fascinating story to show that Abraham was not drifting. He is rescuing. Listen, when we stop rescuing the perishing, when we stop caring for those who are not as fortunate as we are, we are drifting in our faith. The psalmist says this, Give justice to the weak, to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. You know, self-righteousness will never produce respect. It always tries to demand it, but finds it is all too elusive. In Romans chapter 3, it says, The righteousness is given through faith in Christ to all believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. Listen, you may suffer when you rescue somebody, but Peter says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, to constantly rescue people is a big act of humility. I think it was Spurgeon who said, better a humble sinner than a self-righteous saint. Now, the reason we stop rescuing others is because we become filled with ourselves. I wish I could give you a picture of that I see on my laptop as I'm recording this broadcast. The first picture is a man who is very self-righteous, right? And under the picture of him, he's got his nose up in the air, he's got his eyes rolled back, and he's got the bulging Adam's apple, and he says, I work hard to maintain this righteous expression. The Bible says that God hates a proud look. Are you full of yourself? Listen, you can never be filled with the Holy Spirit if you are full of yourself. Uh, the other picture I have is of a guy with his mouth wide open, and he's looking like he's screaming, right? I mean, his hair is pulled back, and he says, God just doesn't understand me. Maybe that's what you are. Listen, God understands you better than you understand yourself. He knows every concern that you have. He knows every weakness that you have. We have a God that loves us in spite of our shortcomings. He understands you. He knows you very well. The third picture I have is a picture of a woman. And she's got a, a long nose and big eyes and a big mouth. And uh, she's got her hair pulled back. And she's got the expression of a self-righteous individual. And under her picture, it says, well, I would never have done that. Uh, filled with arrogance, right? If you're one who thinks that you will never do whatever, you better be very careful because oftentimes the things that we say we will never do are the things that we will eventually do. And then the fourth picture is a picture of a, a person who has kind of got the, um, the martyr complex. I mean, he's got the bulging eyes and he's got circles all around his eyes and, and his nose and his face is all sagging down and, and he has a halo above his head and and he says, no one realizes, and it's a choke. nobody realizes how much I gave up for God, the, the martyr complex, right? Listen, if, 
if any of that describes you today, you are missing an opportunity to rescue others because you are so self-consumed. Spurgeon also said, the greatest enemy to human souls is the self-righteous spirit, which makes men look to themselves for salvation. When Jesus was on the earth, he was very patient, kind, and long-suffering to those of the most notorious types of sinners. But he was always very harsh on those who were filled with self-righteousness, those who were arrogant, those who thought they were better than anybody else. You see, righteousness produces ultimate respect. And it's not self-righteousness. It's the declaring of being righteous by God. Solomon says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. You know, when I think about moral grandstanding, there's a snare to being a moral grandstander. Do some people harm themselves by following into this trap of moral grandstanding or, or virtue signaling? I would say, obviously, yes. Do we carry on that message that we have it together more than everybody else? There's a clinical psychiatrist named Joshua Grubbs, and he writes about a published study that was done recently in which they studied 6,000 Americans, and they questioned them about their importance and the importance of moral and political beliefs and how they communicate them to others. Now, almost everyone admitted they were occasionally guilty of grandstanding. That is sharing their beliefs selfishly for respect or status. However, those who are habitual grandstanders, they experience conflict in their personal relationships. People who reported grandstanding more often also reported more experiences as arguing with loved ones and and severing the ties with friends or, or family members over political or moral disagreements. People indicated using their deepest hell beliefs to boost their own status in real life also reported more toxic social behaviors. These included picking fights over politics on Facebook or berating strangers on Twitter for having the wrong opinions. Grubbs advised that all grandstanders should really check their motives. You see, when you enter into a contentious territory with somebody who has a different opinion, ask whether you've done so because you're genuinely interested in communicating and connecting with your fellow human, or are you just trying to score points? Do you find yourself trying to one-up the great deeds of somebody else to make yourself look good to people uh, whose respect you crave? I want to encourage you that when you think about drifting, when you no longer rest on God's promises, when you no longer rescue people, when you no longer stop resolving conflict, you are drifting. Do the opposite. Be intentional about resolving conflict. Be intentional about removing selfishness. Trust God's promises. They always come through, not often on our timing, but on God's timing. And then be involved in rescuing others. There's there's something that I've seen about people who win souls. The Bible says that he that winneth souls is wise. 
But I've also discovered not only are they wise, but soul winners very rarely get discouraged. Which leads me to the last point. We begin to drift in our faith when we stop rejoicing in God's provisions. I want to look at Genesis chapter 14, verses 18 and 24. It says, Then Melchizedek, that means my king is righteous, Melchizedek, king of Salem, that's short for Jerusalem, Genesis 14, 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. He blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to the God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hands. Then Abraham gave a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the good for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, who with raised hands I have sworn to the oath of the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. As you look at this, is amazing what Abraham does. Abraham is giving a blessing back to Melchizedek in appreciation for what God has done for him. He is refusing to receive a free meal. He's refusing to accept anything that doesn't belong to him. He says, everything here I will pay for. And as a result, he's saying, I'm trusting God to come through. Now, it's amazing when you think about rejoicing in God's provision. I've discovered that oftentimes when our income increases, we think it's to raise our standard of living. I want you to look at a raise in your income as maybe that God wants you to increase not your standard of living, but rather your standard of giving. Lauren Hill talks about God's provision. Lauren Hill is a Grammy-winning songwriter, and, and she says, we have an enemy inside of us who tries to convince us that there is something out there that is better than what God wants for us. But that's not true. Every day I remind myself that what God is providing is always what's best for me. Amazing. You and I think about giving and how we should be giving generously. Think about the Old Testament. You ever wonder how much people in the Old Testament gave? Most people say, well, 10%. Well, that's true for starters, because the Old Testament, there are several types of mandatory giving, and here Abraham talks about giving back 10%. But there was also compulsory giving for each person who considered himself faithful to the nation of Israel or faithful to the covenant. This was not optional, this compulsory giving. Uh, There was a tenth called the Lord's tithe or the Levite's tithe because it went to support the priest and the ministry in the tabernacle and the temple. That's found in Leviticus chapter 27. But there's also found in that chapter that they were to give a tenth of everything, not just their income, but a tenth of the grain, a tenth of the fruit of the trees. That all belonged to the Lord. So 10% of all produce, 10% of all animals was also required. A man who did not comply was considered to be disobeying the law of God and robbing God. In Malachi 3, 8, will a man rob God, yet you have robbed me? And you say, how? Through tithes and offerings. 
And then he goes further and explains, you know, you're giving us not the the best fruit or not the best of your offspring, of your animals. You're giving us like these, these beat up lambs and this beat up fruit. And then there's a second tithe. That's called the festival tithe, Deuteronomy chapter 12, where it says, you will cross the Jordan. You're going to settle in the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. He will give you rest from all of your enemies around you so that you can live in safety. Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, you're to bring everything that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes. So here's a special offering, a second tithe that is required. And goes on by saying, all the choice possessions that you have vowed to the Lord. So that would be a festival tithe. So we have an additional tithe. Well, you have two compulsory 10% tithes. Now you're up to 20%. There was yet another tithe, and it was termed the poor tithe. Now, that's in Deuteronomy chapter 14. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites, who have no allotment of inheritance of their own, and the aliens, and the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied so the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So he says every three years, there's an additional 10% tithe for helping to care for those who are living in poverty. Now that breaks down to 3% per year. So this means mandatory tithes for faithful Israelites is now 23% of their annual income. A tithe for the priesthood, a tithe for the national feast, a tithe to aid the poor. And by the way, all this is compulsory. Now, it didn't end there. There was a mandatory type of profit sharing for the poor. This is found in Leviticus chapter 19, where it says, when you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time and pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them to the poor or to the alien. I am the Lord your God. It was a large amount of your field that was left unharvested. So that was mandatory so that you could provide for the poor. Now, there's other examples given as well. There was a third of a shekel temple charge that was paying for the materials for temple worship. So all in all, A faithful Israelite is now required to give between 23 and 25% of their income per year. And then you would come and volunteer a free will offering or a grace giving offering, which included the first fruits giving and the free will offerings. So, an Israelite who loved the Lord, in addition to giving 25% of his income, would give the first fruits of his crop to God. He would survey his fields for the best part of it. He would harvest it. He would take the best part to the Lord before the harvest, trusting that God would multiply the harvest. So it was a faith-giving and entirely voluntary. Well, finally, uh, the free will offering giving for special projects, right? Building projects of the temple, for example. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering from each man whose heart prompts him to give. It was not mandatory. 
uh, comes from the heart. The entire emphasis is free will, joyous, and over and above the 25%. So I tell you all this thing so that you know uh, that God, in his graciousness to us as New Testament believers, I mean, you look at the Old Testament, and uh, the mandatory giving, it was somewhere around 30%, where some were giving up the 40%. It was huge. That was the Old Covenant. But thank God we live in a New Covenant. What would happen if everybody listening to me would actually give 10% of their income, of their increase, back to the Lord? I believe that would be the beginning of revival, where God's people are giving generously so that the Word of God can be proclaimed throughout the land and throughout the world. Listen, when you think about thankfulness, thankfulness produces blessings. We are not thankful for that which we do not give. Thanksgiving involves not just a verbal appreciation, but a tangible gift. Psalm 28. The Lord is my strength and my shield. I trust Him with all my heart. He helps me, and my heart is filled with joy. I burst out in songs of thanksgiving. I pray today that you are not drifting from your faith, that you are growing stronger and stronger every single day. Have a great weekend. Hope to see you in church on Sunday. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557, or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ, there is always hope for your heart.